Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I can help your organization discover what makes you special and help you share that with the world. Writing engaging content is one of my superpowers. I create fertile ground for my clients, bringing your ideas to life. I love to connect people and resources and solve seemingly impossible problems. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a review and subscribe to hear our next episode. Today is the final episode of my Four Badass Black Women series, although I have more badass black women coming up soon. My guest today is Raina Casey, who has been through a ton of difficulties in her life, which we barely touched on because her resilience story is so fascinating. Raina is a veteran of the U.S. Army Reserve, has worked at 9-11 site, and survived Hurricane Katrina. She's also dealt with a ton of serious health issues and huge griefs. She's raised a superstar son with autism, and most fascinating of all, she's a bud tender and a death doula who focuses on quality of life care. The first death doula I've ever met. Now, let's meet Raina. Hello, Raina. How are you doing today? I'm hot. (laughs) I know. I don't have air conditioning either. We've got fans blowing tonight. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm hot and perimenopausal, I think, because I'm getting like these prickly heats on my back. <laughs> oh my God, really? Oh, I'm glad I'm through with that. I don't have to deal with them. Too. I'm older than you. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting started, man. And it's, oh, it's lucky. I, I look forward to older age if that's what it's going to bring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was lucky that I didn't have too many hot flashes, just occasional ones. So I was more moody. What's life like during COVID-19? Life for me during COVID has been very different. Um, I have an autistic son and he lives in Eugene. And so helping him manage his anxiety behind it all and helping him understand what was going to happen and what wasn't going to happen. And I guess like translating that into his language has been difficult. He's okay now, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And my, my clients are suffering really bad. They can't see their relatives and the hospice visits are very different now. Hmm. Nowhere near what they're used to. So it's been hard on everybody. Yeah. I have a former coworker whose husband died a few months ago in the middle of all this and she was able to get remote support, but I can't imagine going through that process with the loved one and not be able to support them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We had a recent Well, we had three deaths in my family recently. The first one was very sudden, out of the blue, unexpected. And it was really hard for us to figure out how we were going to celebrate their life and how we were going to say goodbye and be healthy and be content with, with the way that we had to say goodbye. That was very different. I mean, you know, you do what you have to do, I guess, but it still really sucks. It totally sucks. Horrible. I would imagine. I mean, my my oldest son is 23 and he lives five miles away. And, you know, I see him occasionally, but it's so hard not to be able to hug your son. It is. It really, really is. Yeah. And I've seen him you know, since this has started, but now with the protests and stuff going on downtown, he wants to see his mom and I want to see him, but Mm -hmm. I'll have to figure out a way to get down there because there's no way I would have him navigate through downtown past 6 p.m. in the evening to get back on the bus to go home. Yeah. 
So can you share with listeners about your life? I grew up between New Orleans, Louisiana, Miami, Florida, and Portland, Oregon. And I currently live in Portland, Oregon. I've been back here now since August 2005. And what's your grit and resilience story? My grit and resilience story. Oh, wow. Well, I am the child of an alcoholic. When I was 11, my father passed away from HIV, AIDS, and that was back in the early 90s where everybody that had AIDS was deemed to be gay and dirty. And my mom made that a really horrible experience for us because she didn't really understand. And I think she was probably a little hurt behind what she didn't understand. And so she used us as his bullets to shoot at him every day. And so that made that grieving process really hard. And it really strained our relationship in a major, major way. To get to Portland, I left New Orleans after Katrina. We were washed out just like everybody else. And I didn't want to go back to Miami but I had relatives on both sides here in Portland. And so this is where I came and this is where I've stayed since then. Got some health shit, you know, that's that's pretty janky right now. I'm a CNS lymphoma patient. I just recently had to start maintenance chemo again. I have a seizure disorder that's really inconvenient. I tried to go camping on my birthday and my meds had me so out of whack. I fell and skint my knee. Oh so, no. So there was no camping then. And when we attempted to make up for that camping trip, I had a seizure and fell off the top bunk, sprained my back and recrapped two ribs and I'm back on concussion protocol. So yay. <laughs> wow, that's awful. Yeah, yeah, it is. But my line of work has brought me so much reward from that. I've always worked in the funeral industry. I've always had some sort of weird like fascination with death. After mm -hmm. I graduated high school and went into the military, I went into the quartermaster series to work in the mortuary affairs unit. And then that's how I ended up at the 9-11 site during the recovery, because by then there was no rescue left to be done. Because of the CNS lymphoma, I had brain surgery in 2012. The surgery went completely crap. I ended up in the process of the surgery my brain started to swell. I had four seizures and then I had a stroke. Oh my God. And I was 33 years old. Wow. So I was like pretty much kind of in my prime. I was working and going to the hospital. And four days later, I woke up in ICU with all these doctors and stuff standing around. So it's, it's been a hard ride since then. The stroke left me with residual damage in my left hand. At the time, I was working for the medical examiner's office as an autopsy technician. With a numb hand that doesn't really work, you can't mm. do that line of work anymore. Mm -hmm. So... I had to stop. I got really sad and really depressed. I was using cannabis for my medical needs anyway. And then I started doing more research about it and started learning more and thinking, you know, this is something that I might be able to do. So I got into the cannabis industry at the lowest level as a bud tender. And then just the research and networking and stuff that I've done over time gave me opportunities to meet other people that normally wouldn't use cannabis for anything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're talking about like people who have worked for like 
wouldn't so they get weird. drug tested regularly yeah, yeah 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 or just had no interest or didn't believe that there was anything good or beneficial about cannabis until they seen the benefits and the quality of life improvement that it brought for their loved one or when they see somebody that they knew was barely walking and then they see them a year later and they ask them, wow, you know, did you have like a knee replacement? And it's like, no, I've been using tinctures and topicals. <laughs> so I'm walking fine now without pain. It's a beautiful thing to see. And that's what I guess had me start to fuse cannabis and death and dying and noticing that cannabis can be very beneficial in quality of life care. I was not aware of that. I mean, I think usually they give people morphine as they're on hospice, yeah, right? So is that, is that a substitute for morphine or is it with morphine? Um, for my clients and patients, it's worked as a substitute. It's cured their pain and it's not brought on the anxiety that Ativan, you know, cures. So they mm-hmm. don't really have to take that anymore. They're pain free, but they're also able to engage with their loved ones. They're not stuck at home in the bed. And if they are stuck at home in the bed, they recognize the people that come to see them. They're mm-hmm. able to engage with these people as opposed to just laying there and then the person that comes to visit is really being mindful about keeping their visit short because they don't want to wear that person out. Uh Well, with cannabis, I've seen people who have been able to sit up and be like, you know, great, I'm so glad that you're here. And their loved ones will come to see them and they're expecting to see them looking like they're dying. And they come in and they see their loved one and they're sitting up and they're talking and they're probably eating and all that stuff. Then it's like, oh, well, everybody told me that you were, you know, <laughs> going really, really bad. And they're like, oh, yeah, I am. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So that's why you call it a quality of life. You like to focus on quality of life instead of quality. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. A lot of people consider it end of life care. And by trade, it is end of life care. But for me, in my view, in the way that I look at it, I think the quality of life that a person has left is much more important and will probably supersede how long they had left. I think for most patients, a good three months where they're able to engage and be present and even participate in how they want their life celebrated after they've transition is better than six months where that person is left canatonic and they're just taking meds. They're not wanting to eat. They're sleeping a lot. They're not able to engage with their loved ones that come and see them. So yeah, you know, the quality is in anything in life. Quality is always better than quantity. You can have Mm. a lot of it and it'll be really low quality, but you'll have a lot. Or you can have good quality and not have as much, or even in some cases you can have just as much, but the quality is a lot better. Yeah. A good product is better than having a lot of product. So is most of what you use, like you said, tinctures and topicals, or is it also oral cannabis? Topicals. uh I have some clients and patients that do prefer to use medibles. So I'll make, or I'll get with other vendor friends of mine and make them candy specifically 
specific for their need. A lot of the tinctures are oral and they'll take those sublingually, like underneath their tongue. The topicals are things that they would apply to their body. They have like a broken hip or they have neuropathy pain or just pain, period, from whatever it is they're suffering from. The topicals can almost help to 86 that right away. (laughs) And working with the topical, working using the topicals and the tinctures together works even better. Fascinating new world for me. I appreciate that. A few weeks ago, I never even heard of the concept of a death doula until my new friend Amira told me she wanted to be a death doula. And then like within a week, I had met you online. (laughs) It's like, wait a second, death doulas come up in my, in my lexicon twice in one week. It's amazing. So can you tell me, give me a little history on the concept of death doulas and what that means? How do you practice? The concept of death doulas, I believe, came about when people started to connect on a more universal and spiritual level than a religious or a typical, you know, medical level. A lot of people don't really want to have hospice anymore. Mm -hmm. They want to have a lot more, they want to be a lot more empowered in how their last few months or whatever time that they have left. They like to be a lot more empowered in the way that that's going to look. Most of them, I will say eight out of 10, the first thing that they express is that they do not want to die in a hospital. They want to be at home. They don't want to have hospice coming around. They don't want a bunch of doctors and medical people sniffing around their house and in their business and that sort of thing. And so I think when people started to become interested in being just as empowered in their transition as women were in bringing their children into the world, that there was a death midwifery movement that came from that. I'd never heard of it. And the only reason I ever did find out about it was because of my work in the cannabis industry. And I was bud tending for Erica Badu when she came to Portland two years ago, I believe. And she was at the Snits downtown. And I bud tended for her, rolled up some joints and so on and so forth. And so once the concert started, she started to, you know, just kind of talk a little bit in between the songs. I knew that she was a birth doula because she talked about that quite often on like her Instagram and website and blog and things like that. And she was actually trained by a Black woman here in Portland named Shafia Monroe. And she teaches women full circle doulas. So she does from basically from conception to postpartum is the way that they do it. And they do it culturally based. So there's a lot of African tradition that's woven into that, the way that they perform their services. So I knew that she was a birth doula and she told the audience. She was like, yeah, she said, I'm a birth doula and I'm a death doula. She was like, I help bring them in. She said, and I'll help you. You know, she said, and I help usher them out. And I was like, death doula. <laughs> and after that, I swear, I really didn't concentrate on much of the concert Yeah. after that, because it was just in my mind, like death doula, death doula, death doula. And I came home and of course my partner at the time, he was like, hey babe, how's the concert? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. <laughs> It was good. (laughs) I need to research this real quick. And Mm -hmm. I came home. I got online, Google death doula, started looking at it and stuff. And the minute I seen it, I was like, this is what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. This is the way I'm going to get back into the mortuary industry. Wow. And you know what? You can use cannabis and do it. 
And what I didn't know is that I had already had a death doula client. I just didn't know at the time that that's what that client was. She taught me so much about transition and grace and empowerment. And yeah, the lesson that I learned from her was mind blowing. And it's one that I will absolutely never forget to this day. And from the time that I started treating her, I called her my favorite patient. When I would tell my son, I'm going to see him. Okay, I know you're going to see your favorite patient. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'll see you in a couple hours. But when I came home and I researched, I was like, oh, that's what that was with her. I can do this? Like, really? Cool? Nope. Wonderful. And was thinking, okay, I can do it. How? And I found a training that started in two days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. So I took it. It wasn't the training that I really wanted to take. In time, I do still want to go back and take Alua Arthur's training. But I was like, if this is what it's going to take to just get the certification and get in the door, great, wonderful. Did it. And the word got around that I was doing it. And where African-Americans are concerned, we're very cultural when it comes to transition. We like to be taken care of by our own, mm -hmm. even when our bodies are being prepared for final disposition, or we prefer to go and see someone else that's African-American. And mm -hmm. in most cities, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, you don't have very many African-American funeral directors. But it's been great. It's nothing that I would change forever. It's been the best experience I've never had a bad experience with it. There have been bad times where I wish that I could change things, but I've learned so much about people and the way that they grieve and the way they want to celebrate their life and not just people, but the way that they honor their animals as family members. Mm -hmm. The first time I had a family that called about a pet and I was like, this is a joke. Who told you to call? Is this what, some kind of mm -hmm. punk or... <laughs> Are you recording this on the other end to play for a prank or what? What do you mean? I was like, okay, but this family was very serious about the way that they wanted to say goodbye their, to their pet. Pets are like family to people, aren't they, sometimes? I learned that, yes. Yeah. I learned that pets are like family to people. And I also learned that pets grieve mm. the loss of their owners. They do, yeah. They absolutely do. They absolutely do. Mm -hmm. I've seen it and experienced it on my own. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe they had gave the dog some CBD or something. But <laughs> no, mm -hmm. he was absolutely really in that moment mm. of knowing that his owner was transitioning and was starting to grieve that. So when do people usually call you? At what stage do they bring in a death I've had people call me from every point, from the time that they receive their diagnosis and they know that I exist or try to find out if I exist, all the way to the point to where a person has already transitioned and somebody that they know would say, you know, they just had a transition. It was their mother, father, child, sibling. I think they could use some support. And I would tell them, you know, great, I'll give them a call, send them a message. And if they 
want me to support them, then that's what I will thankfully and gladly do. And then I get calls from hospitals every once in a while when families want support, but they don't want the support of a hospice Mm -hmm. staff and they don't want the support of the clergy Mm -hmm. that the hospital has available or a family will want extra support in setting up a honor walk and what they want that to look like. So it's been beginning and then all points in between. So you do some grief counseling too, it sounds like. No, I do No, not. you don't. No, so when, I'm when, not a, I'm not what a about, counselor. What about when people call you after their loved one has passed? What do you, how do you help them then if it's not grief counseling? I offer, I ask them, what can I do for you? What do you think I can do for you? What can I do? Do you need me to come and sit with you now while you just kind of sit? Or do you need help at the mortuary or the funeral or with the funeral director Mm-hmm. and getting your needs or your wants or whatever fam- or your loved ones wants mm-hmm. expressed to the funeral director. How do you find space to celebrate the life of a family member that wasn't the member of a church? You're bearing witness to your presence for them, sounds like. Yes, yeah. good time. Yeah, being there is very huge. I'm really interested in the fact that you've always been drawn to death. I don't think that I was like that when I was younger. My grandparents died when I was like nine or 10. And I remember they had an open casket funeral and that was my first exposure to death. But when I really got to know death was my oldest son was born at 24 weeks gestation. I was in the NICU for 17 weeks. And Mm -hmm. I got to know all these other families who had babies that died. And then also uh, I was involved in a nonprofit at Legacy Emanuel for supporting families who are going through this. And we got to know this family that had a child with a heart defect and he died. He was one of my son's friends and he died at four and a half. And Oh, wow. And it, it changed my, I mean, the experience changed my life because they didn't have family in the area. So the NICU nurses called us up and asked us to come and basically do what you you did, you know, when, yeah. you'd be there. You're just be present. Yeah. yeah. And so they held their, you know, we, it was in the pediatric intensive care unit and they held their baby, they held, held their child for, you know, the rest of the night. And then after he died, the mortuary was kind enough to let them probably for at least a week after he died to go see their son every day. Like they would warm up his body enough so they could hold yeah. You know, yeah. and I just feel like I, I've learned so much about death and life from these other friends that have gone through this experience. It's, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. My fascination with death came when I was probably about nine years old. Hmm. I was a big time, big time daddy's girl. And my dad was a DJ. He was just a really, you know, all around cool dude, but he was different. We always had a different experience with him. We knew that whatever it was we were going to do was going to be something that we wouldn't do with any other relative. And none of our friends were probably going to do either. Mm -hmm. But he took us to a mortuary, a funeral home, and it was at night, or it might have just been, you know, in the wintertime and dark at like 5 p.m. or something. But he took us to the funeral home and there was this lady or, you know, this lady and she's deceased and she's laying on what I now know, they call it a slumber bed. And it's like something that they would dress deceased people on and 
allow them to be viewed by their loved ones and then they would cremate them. So it's not like a casket. It's like a, it's basically a flat board, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes they'll dress the person fully or sometimes they'll just clean them up and put like a hospital gown, like, or not a hospital gown, but a blanket just above, you know, or just under their neck. And so all you will see is their head or something like that. But this lady was black. She was dark complexion. Her hair was really tightly curled. It was curled so the next day those curls would kind of fall a little bit. And that's what the achieved hairstyle would be. (laughs) But her hair was super, super tightly curled. She had on red lipstick. Her fingernails were painted red. She had on a red dress and she had on red shoes. And he introduced us to this lady. (laughs) (laughs) Your dad did? Yeah, yeah, he he introduced us to this lady. I think her name was Louise or something like that. I can't remember, but he introduced us to her and we just kind of stood there and he, you know, I guess stood there for a solemn moment or whatever. And then we left and went and got ice cream. (laughs) Normalized death for you, right? Yeah, but going to get ice cream that night, Dairy Queen seemed so dark. (laughs) It was like there should have been a light flickering of the, you know. Oh my gosh. It did. Dairy Queen just seemed really morbid, but I could not get that image out of my mind. I had never been in a funeral home before. And so there's this big, huge building with all these really wonderful and like intricate and beautiful paintings. And the stairwell is really huge and grand. And, you know, it's got like this, it had a book of remembrance for this huge ass book. I almost thought that it was might have been the same book that I had heard about when I was in church that God had to see if your name was in it before you get in. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm thinking, oh, that must be the book. Okay, cool. Drop this off. And the next day, my grandmother was going somewhere. I think it was to church. Yeah, it was. She was going to church. And I just warmed the wax in her ears the entire way. I was like, Grandma, what do they do in funeral home? And she answered my questions. I could tell now that she was probably getting really annoyed, (laughs) but she answered my questions anyway. And after church was over, she gave one of the ladies from the church, she gave her a ride home. And so then I was thinking, oh, cool. Not only can I finish my conversation with grandma, but I can ask her. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love it. (laughs) And so I did. I was like, miss, my dad took us to a funeral home. Have you been to a funeral home before? You know what they do there? What do they do after they leave the funeral home? The cemetery. What's that? What do they do at the cemetery? That's where they bury people. You mean like put them in the ground? In that box that they put him in? Well, she wasn't in a box, though. Are they going to put her in a box? <laughs> oh, no, nine, she was being cremated. Plus she's What's a nine-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, no, she was, well, no, they were being, you know, she, she was trying to be so sweet about it. She was, no, baby, uh-uh. She said she was, she said she wasn't in a uh, casket. She said that she was probably going to be cremated. Cremated? What's that? <laughs> that's, when they put, that's when, you know, they set people on fire. On fire? Oh, my god! They set people on fire after they die? Are you for real? Then what? <laughs> well, sometimes they take the ashes and put them in a box. And what do you do with that box? Do you bury that box? Well, no, you keep it. Why? Who keeps the ash? you know? Yeah, and how lucky you were to have, have adults in your life who answered your questions about it, right? I was. I was, but that only lasted for a hot minute because, like I said, I knew that my grandmother was getting annoyed with uh, my questions, uh-huh. and she finally told me, you just sat back there and hush. 
Well, and it's hard for aging people to talk about death sometimes too, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, well, that too. Know? Yeah. That too. But I also remember her talking to her friends and relatives and stuff. And I'm sure she probably asked my dad, what were you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, my first funeral was when I was nine. And and I'm really glad that my parents, you know, my parents are the type of people who show up for funerals. They just do. They, they feel it's important to support their family and friends and they show up. And so, you know, I, we were all three of us, my sister and brother and I were all taken to the funeral of my grandmother. And I think it's really important for children to be, you know, to be aware yeah. of death and to understand. Yeah, that, that you is, know? you know, that it's, it's okay. I mean, yeah. it sucks, yeah. but it's perfectly okay. Yeah. And also, as you know, so well, if you don't talk about grief and process it, you can't, you know, you can't heal from it. No, you cannot. Mm-hmm. I learned that the very, very hard way. And as a parent is still something that I feel like I failed my son on. I did not teach my son how to grieve. I didn't. I absolutely did not teach him how to grieve. Mm-hmm. Whenever I was sad about a relative or somebody that had transitioned and he knew that I would be sad, you mm-hmm. know, but of course he, mom, are you okay? What's wrong? Nothing. I'm fine. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? Uh, uh, yeah. You sure? Yeah. Okay. And it's like, yeah, you know, did a look, you know, get along so I can finish. Or I would wait and hide and go and cry or show any emotion. Or I would have days where I couldn't get him out of the door fast enough because I needed to break down and cry and mm. show emotion. Mm-hmm. And now that we're having relatives that are close to him, and I know he's sad and processes this hopefully somehow in his own way. And I'll ask him, are you okay? Yeah. Are you sure? Yep. I'm cool. I'm fine. I'm good. Mm, you see that happening all over again, what you did to yourself. Huh? Yeah. 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 But at the same time, that's what was done to me. Yeah. Because my mom did not teach me how to grieve. Mm. And I don't know where the whole be strong at a funeral, calm down when people die thing came from with her. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea where that came from. But I remember I had a cousin that transitioned. Him and my son's birthday are on the same day. And his father and my birthday are on the same day. So for whatever reason, they had his celebration of life on mine and his father's birthday. And it was like, okay, (laughs) whatever this is about, Uh, but I'm going to go. And they asked me, you know, Raina, would you mind writing a poem or something like that? And I was like, no, cool, great, you know, fine. Everybody stands up to do whatever they have been called to do. And I get called and they're like, you know, Raina, she's going to read a poem, blah, 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 blah. My mom was sitting in, in the row in front of me. And just as I got ready to stand up, she turned around and she cut her eyes at me to where they almost looked like slits and her mouth and her jaw got really tight. And she told me, you better not get up there and start crying. And I was like, oh shit. So I did it and I didn't cry, but I remember that by the time it was done, the paper was almost torn in half because Uh. my hands had been shaking from trying to restrain the grief that I had. (sighs) Yeah. Do you have any uh, words of wisdom as a death doula on how, what do you wish that they, your parents had done or what, what should parents do? I wish that she would have, you know what, when you're sad and when you're hurt and for whatever reason and your kids notice it, 
And believe me, they notice it. Mm-hmm. And they ask you specifically, are you okay, mom? Are you okay, dad? Don't lie to them. Don't lie to them. Let them know I'll be okay, but I'm sad right now. I'm sad because I miss grandma. Sad because, you know, I miss my dad. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you still have your dad. And aren't you happy about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just want you to know that mm-hmm. if you're ever sad about anything, it's okay to be sad. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that I had told my son that. I don't know mm-hmm. why I didn't. It's a generational curse mm-hmm. that I did not break. Well, I think also my oldest son, he does he does not have autism, but he has ADHD. And being a 24-weeker, he was... You know, he's very medically fragile, especially the first few years of his life. And I think that parents of children that have any kind of disabilities, we have a tendency to want to protect our children. Oh yeah. <laughs> so that that may have been that may played into it for you as well yeah. as your generational, you know. I mean you wanna yeah. you wanna protect them, you wanna make life easier for them, you know. Right, because you know it's already hard as it is. Yes, and I knew exactly. that my son had hyperactive impulsive ADHD before I knew that he was autistic. Uh-huh. So yeah, you want to protect him. I mean, yeah, you, you yeah, hopefully you can give yourself some grace around that because yeah, you know, I hope to yeah, eventually. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about your son. I read about him after you told me about his name and he's like, isn't he like a star athlete? He's like a runner he's, and <laughs> he's my star. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll always be the biggest fan that he has. Mason is just wonderful. Like your son, he was born early. Mason was born at 32 weeks. Ooh, he's a preemie. Um, yeah, he's preemie's a preemie. Rule. But I preemie's also wonder rule. if maybe the doctor didn't really calculate things quite right. He was very long. Mason was four pounds and one seventh of an ounce, but he was 21 inches long. That is long. Yeah. And back then, in 1999, they measured gestation by the length of the baby's thigh bone. Wow. And so he was really long. And so I wonder if maybe, you know, he was just a little skinny, you know, kind of dude. So he might have been earlier than than they thought, you mean, possibly. Yeah, he yeah. might have been earlier than they thought, or he mm-hmm. might have just been on time and just really small mm-hmm. with his length. Because I can't imagine what another six weeks of length on him would have looked like. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I yeah. had like a five pound, two foot long infant, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Was he born in uh, New Orleans or? No, he no. was born in Canada. On Canada. Accident. Oh, yeah. you were up there temporarily? I was, no, I was visiting for the holiday. Oh my gosh. And something kept telling me, wow. I almost predicted everything about his birth. Something kept telling me that he was going to be a boy and he was. Something told me that he was going to be early and he was. And something told me that he was going to be born the day that I was supposed to come back. And he did. Oh my <laughs> God. That, I can't imagine. I mean, so, being in the NICU is hard enough and having a preemie is hard enough, but then not being home. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was close, so it wasn't too bad. But he came early, Mason crowned twice, and then he decided, well, maybe I don't want to come today. And he turned around, and when he crowned again, he presented hand first. We were off to the C-section unit. (laughs) Right. Mason struggled a lot academically until he got to sixth grade. And Mm -hmm. when he got to sixth grade, I put him in a charter school. 
And he got on the honor roll and he stayed on honor roll until he graduated high school. His entire four years of high school, I think he missed two days total, was always on time. He graduated high school with honors with his diploma from Jefferson High School. He graduated with honors ropes from Jefferson High and Portland State for classes that he was taking there. He got a full ride academic scholarship to the University of Oregon. He ran track and started running track in eighth grade, just out of the blue. He had never participated in any team sports or anything like that. I knew that track was in his DNA because we come from a track family. Almost everybody in my family has run track. To my knowledge, they still are. So he graduated high school. He got to Eugene and he was doing great. 2016, he started running for the Oregon Special Olympics and it blew their mind. I think a couple times we had to actually get proof that he qualified <laughs> as a Special Olympics athlete. He was autistic, but he's very high functioning. There's a lot of early intervention and therapy and homeschooling on top of regular schooling and a lot of other stuff to get him to where he was academically. So I think because he was so high functioning and because he was so fast and he was fast in a way that they weren't used to seeing on the Special Olympics. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, um, well, we need proof that, that he actually does qualify. And I'm like, yeah, great. Cool. Here it is. After that, they let him be. Mm. Mason has a really humble spirit. He's a very giving young man and he loves people. He likes to meet new people, especially people on the spectrum. That's really exciting for him when he meets just people. I think recently he got a tattoo. He was like, yeah, my tattoo artist is on the spectrum. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. You're going <laughs> to get ink poisoning, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful oh. friend, but he loves to meet people that also have development or any mm -hmm. other kind of dis disability. And oh I think he likes to inspire people and their parents and their loved ones to mm -hmm. say, you know, don't count them out mm -hmm. just because they have a diagnosis, because I can show and prove to you that if you give them a chance, they're probably just as good, if not better than you are. <laughs> so because of his spirit and the, at the attitude that he had, he was granted an opportunity to run in an exhibition race in the 2016 Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon. He was excited because it wasn't, I mean, it didn't mean that he was going to the Olympics or anything like that. It was just the USATF giving Special Olympics a chance to, you know what I mean? To, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, to perform on a big world stage like that. He did it. He won. Yeah. And he got to meet the president of Tracktown USA and he got to meet Jackie Joyner Kersey and he got his picture taken with her. His godmother is actually Tommy Smith's niece. And I don't know if you know who Tommy Smith is. I don't know who Tommy, my husband probably does because he's a track Are you fan. familiar <laughs> with the 1968 Olympics and the three or the two athletes that stood up and they raised their fists up? No, I'm not. I better do some education. 
Yeah, in 19, the nineteen sixty eight Olympics, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and I think his name was Peter Norman was the other athlete. But John Carlos and Tommy Smith decided that they were going to use that chant to bring attention to human rights. And a lot mm-hmm. of people thought that it was a black power thing. And there was a little bit of that in there too, but it was actually to bring attention to human rights. And Peter Norman found out that they were going to do it and they didn't have an extra glove, but he told them that he wanted to stand in solidarity somehow with them too. So when Tommy Smith got first place in the 200, John Carlos got second place in the 200 and Peter Norman was from Australia, got third. And when it came time to get their medals and they started to play the national anthem, Tommy Smith and John Carlos put their heads down and they put their right fist up Mm -hmm. in the air. Mm-hmm. with a black glove. And Peter Norman showed his solidarity by not standing on the block. So oh. after that happened, then it was pretty much take your medals and get the fuck out of the village. They faced a lot of stuff when they got back here mm-hmm. to the States behind it. Peter Norman, when he went back to Australia, he faced a lot of backlash. And when Peter Norman died, Tommy Smith and John Carlos went to Australia to be mm. pallbearers. Tommy so he, Smith's niece is my son's godmother. I see. Well, your son sounds like such a superstar. You must be so proud. He is my superstar. Yeah. Usually my wildest dream come true. Yeah. Probably the best thing that I've ever done. That is so awesome. I could talk to you all day, Raina. You have so many questions yeah, for you. I know. We've I'm got t- two minutes left. I know. But this has I know. been great. Yeah. So I've had I'm, a blast. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I have a couple more questions. One of them is so you've you've lived all over it sounds like you've lived all over the country. You we didn't even talk about you surviving Hurricane Katrina and, and then working in 9-11. But you know, I just wanted to ask you about what's life like right now as a black person in Portland, because you know, you're in a predominantly white area. And as oh, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's like polite racism here compared to the yeah, other places yeah, you've lived. It's different. I'm, I guess I'm getting used to not being followed as much in the store. It's different. <laughs> I will never forget. I was at Victoria's Secret and Lloyd Center several years ago, and I was a U.S. bank customer. When I went to pay and pull out my U.S. bank card, the young lady behind the counter told me, we don't take EBT. And EBT is like basically electronic benefits transfer for people who receive uh, welfare and food stamp money. So because she just seen the color of my card, she assumed that I was going to attempt to pay with welfare money, (laughs) which she didn't even know is that at the time, shit, I made too much money to get food stamps. Uh (laughs) Right. So what did you do? I put my debit card back in my wallet and, Mm -hmm. well, actually, no, I pulled it all out. I pulled it out for her to see. And Mm -hmm. I told her, I said, I know you guys don't take EBT, but Mm -hmm. I was going to pay with my debit card. And then she was, oh, no, no, it's okay. And I was like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. It's not okay because I'm going to take my money back and I'm going to leave this little raggedy shit right here. Yes. You put back. Right. And maybe you can act like you earned a paycheck today. And Mm -hmm. I left. Good for you. So there have been a few experiences, you know, like that. Yeah. I'll get places and my credit card won't work because their chip malfunction. And, you know, it'll be like, oh, well, you know, maybe you should call your bank. And I'm like, call my bank. Hmm. (laughs) I wouldn't buy this shit if I didn't have the money to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's little 
little things like that. I'm working in the cannabis industry. <sighs> As a black woman, it's very, very hard. Mm. And there are some lesbian white women that will equate what they go through in the industry to being equal to what black people go through in general. Really? And it's not that. I think that they are failing to realize that they have a privilege that they're not recognizing. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have some sort of privilege that we don't recognize. Even with me being a heterosexual, there's some privilege that comes along with that, that is not afforded to people that I know that are in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, on my previous podcast interview, I interviewed a woman who actually inspired me to get into podcasting. She's a Black woman in Columbia, South Carolina, and we were talking about, she's never been in the Northwest, and I was telling her, you know, about the history here, and, you know, and how much I appreciate those of you who are Black who live here. I know it's not yeah. easy, you know, and we, no, need you. we really need you, we need you, but it's not yeah. easy, I know. No, it isn't. Yeah, yeah. But it's necessary. Yeah. You wanted me to ask you about your God diva and your chosen family. Yes, 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 yes. My God diva, her name is actually Sharon Gary Smith. I think my son gave her that nickname, Grand God Diva. I think so. Yeah. Uh And so her name is Sharon Gary Smith. And like I said, I also work in the cannabis industry. And I was playing around with some seeds that I was engineering with and whatnot. And so I came up with a strain to name after her. (laughs) It's really potent and purple and beautiful and whatnot. She and my chosen family, which is actually like her daughter, her sister Carla, who's been taking care of my son and supporting him and making sure that he's squared away in Eugene. Her daughter, Mariata, is my son's godmother that I was just talking about. Throughout my entire like illness, she's been the one that I've called at all hours of the night, crying, sniffling, or called mm-hmm during the day when I knew she was working or at a meeting to be like, guess what? They told me that (laughs) I had to take this man anymore. And never, not one time has she been like, no, I can't do this. I'm too busy. She's gone to nursing homes and talked tough to them. And yeah, she just, she's, she's the dopest of, of the absolute dope. She really is. And I always tell her sister, my god sister Mariana, I always try to acknowledge and thank her for sharing her mom mm-hmm. with me. Because mm-hmm. if my mom was that dope, I don't think I'd be very akin to people calling her. <laughs> sharing. You mean the sharing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> None of that. <laughs> Well, everybody needs a God diva. They do. Yeah. They do. And, and I really and only can hope that everybody has one that's anywhere near as dope as the one oh, I have. That is a good segue to my last question, which is, is there a story of, well, and the reason I asked this question is because part of why I started the podcast is that I love stories of resilience. I'm fascinated by them. And I'm so inspired by hearing stories of people like you. So what is a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you? in your life honestly my son uh yeah he really no i mean he really went through it when he was in elementary school he had to hear teachers say that you know he was never going to be able to do this and he can't do that and he has and yeah he can do this but you know these are the conditions behind it i've walked in on teachers that have just I walked in on one teacher that told him that he needed to get up and move because he couldn't keep along with an 
art lesson that she was doing. And honestly, mm-hmm. I probably couldn't keep up with it either because I can't drop <laughs> shit. <laughs> but that, and even when he got into high school, we thought that we had kind of gotten over all of that. But when we he got into high school and it was his first parent-teacher conference at Jefferson, the special needs or the special education teacher, she was there. I don't think any of the other teachers showed up. There might've been one out of all the teachers that were responsible for making sure or partly responsible for making sure that he learned because the rest of that was my responsibility. But I don't think any of the other ones showed up. And Mason had struggled in math, which he had gotten genetically because because <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not a math with the, I'm not a math person either. Mm-hmm. To give him credit, he's still better at math than I am. So <laughs> he was struggling in math, and the special needs teacher she looked at him and she said, "Well, Mason, do you think you're going to be able to to do this?" And he was like, "Do what?" Because I had always told him you could do anything you want. Mm-hmm. As long as you really try and utilize the resources that are available to get it done. And he was like, you know, do what? And she said, do you think you're going to be able to, you know, do you think you're going to be able to do math in high school? She was like, we can do a modified diploma. And the minute she said that, I went off <laughs> because I was like a modified diploma. No, you're not. A modified diploma is what they use for students in special education that they probably know mm-hmm. either never will or they never give a chance mm-hmm. to those students to get a traditional high school diploma. Mm-hmm. And with a modified diploma, they'll have a piece of paper that says, yeah, I graduated from high school, but the school district will count that student as a dropout. And so I wasn't going to let that be my son. And I told right. him, I was like, no, you're not giving him a modified diploma. He looked at her and he was like, why do you think I can't graduate? It was his very last parent-teacher conference for senior year, and it was mostly the parents and the teachers and the students going around and finding out if it applied, what the student needed to do to make sure that child graduated on time. In Mason's case, toot toot and blow blow the horn, his was like, this is how great Mason is day. So I could tell that he was really confident about the conference. He felt really good about himself. His self-esteem was really like super high and he never really had really low self-esteem, but he just felt really good about the way that he knew his conference was going to go because Mm -hmm. he knew that he was on track to graduate and everything was fine and good to go. And we finally get to this last teacher and it's still the special needs teacher from freshman year. And she was like, oh, hell, Mason. She was like, I'm really proud of you. And he turned, he looked at her and he said, you said that I wasn't going to (laughs) graduate. Good for him. (laughs) She was like, Oh, well, no, no, no. And I, I looked there and that. I was like, you tried to offer him a modified diploma so you can mark him <laughs> as a dropout. Don't think that because four years have gone by that we forgot mm-hmm. that you tried to count him out. So I just want you to remember, we remember. Well, I hope that, that I hope that she learned, you know, that she won't do that. She won't write other students off. I, I hope not. I remember all those horrible IEP meetings, like, yes. you know, in middle yes. school, mostly in middle school, because then my son graduated. We actually sent him to a high school for kids with learning disabilities, which was really good for him. But, you know, the middle school, I was awful. I and mean, we had a horrible case manager, special ed case manager, and the teachers would show up and they would just basically 
tell us all the things right. that he was not doing right. You know, it's yep. horrible. And that's what it was for Mason. Yeah. And at first I thought that it would be empowering for him to come to his parent and teacher conferences mm-hmm. so he can hear, you know, what me and his teachers were going to work together on and so on and so forth. But then I would see that his spirit would just be so defeated and yeah. he would look so sad. Like, I'm not shit. I'm never going to be able to do this right. My mom's mad at me. She wanted me to hear how bad I was. And I was like, no, no, you're yeah. not going to any more teacher conferences. And I had to educate myself on really reading his IEP and understanding what that language meant. And that if I didn't agree with that language, I wasn't signing that IEP. Mm. I wasn't going to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we have to do this to carry it out. You, we need your signature. Mm. That's why you're not going to get it. So oh. even up until even up until recently with the COVID-19 stuff and Mason struggled really, really bad with his mental health and having to go from being in a classroom with people that he knew and recognized and having a structured routine and access to resources and being able to go to down to the student with disabilities building and all that stuff to overnight, nobody's available. Mm -hmm. Take your computer. This is where class is coming from now. No, there's not going to be a tutor. No, the instructor is not going to meet with you. No. No campus, no nothing, no job either. Mm -hmm. Then at first he really, you know, he kind of struggled with it. But after, I think after about a week, I had his barber that had been cutting his hair since he was seven years old. I had him give him a call because I knew that that was somebody that he trusted. And I knew that that was somebody that he would talk to and he might tell him some things that he wasn't really wanted to reveal to me just yet. Mm-hmm. And so I called him and I was like, hey, he called Mason, see what's up. And he was like, yeah. And so he said that he called him. Mason was like, you know, man, I feel like crying. He was like, we're going to cry, man. So uh... like, it's okay. So it's nice to have a real village that is willing yes. to support you in raising your child. So I call them the community cousins. And it's a great thing to be a parent to know that your child can go to other adults and you know that they go to those other adults, but you don't need to know what they talked about because they're not going to tell you because their child, your child trusts them to keep that between you and them. But I also feel good because I know that I can trust those same adults to not give him any bad advice or yeah. steer him in a direction that's going to be destructive or it's not going to mean him any good or it's going to bring him some kind of trouble or a really unsavory consequence in the end. So yeah, he would be my my great guy. Oh, I love that story. Well, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you, Ray. I'm so glad to know you and I hope you get to meet it in has. person someday. <laughs> yes, this is great. So yeah, thank so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for joining today and hearing Raina's story. Do you see now why I didn't even touch on everything she's been through? I might have to interview her again to ask more about her grit story. Next week, my guest is Sankar Raman, who immigrated to the U.S. from Madras, India, to attend graduate school. After a successful career in high tech, he now applies his technical knowledge, managerial skills, and a pragmatic mind to founding and leading The Immigrant Story, a nonprofit organization that fosters empathy and builds a more inclusive community by sharing immigrant stories. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com.